The Oxford Murder. Rachel McLean had traveled back home to Blackpool, UK to stay with her parents during the summer break of 1990. The 18-year-old had just finished her first year at St. Hilda's College in Oxford, UK, where she had a very busy schedule with school and social groups. She was an active environmentalist and a vegetarian, but her friends also knew her to be a party girl that loved heavy metal. During term breaks, she worked part-time jobs and donated her time to local charities. Late that summer, Rachel and her friends were drinking at a club called The Adam and Eve when she met a charming bartender with long brown hair named John Tanner. John was from Nottingham, a few hours away, and working a summer job in Blackpool. He was good-looking, sociable, outgoing, and funny. John was born in the United Kingdom, but immigrated to New Zealand at an early age. After growing up in New Zealand, he came back to the UK to attend university in Nottingham and lived with his aunt. Rachel and John flirted that night, and she invited him to her upcoming 19th birthday party. When he showed up for her birthday party, John and Rachel instantly hit it off. The two slept together that night, and the relationship developed from there. At the end of the summer, Rachel returned to Oxford and John to Nottingham. Oxford was over two hours away from Nottingham, so they could only see each other during occasional long weekends or holidays. John would call her several times per week and wrote her a steady stream of long love letters. Over Christmas, she brought him to Blackpool to meet her parents, and her Christmas gift to him was a paisley tie. Over the months, John grew more and more infatuated with Rachel, but the distance frustrated him. He would become agitated when he would call the flat she shared with four other students to find she wasn't home. Rachel was a busy girl, involved with her studies and her many social groups, and didn't have time to wait by the phone for him to call. He grew increasingly jealous and worried that she was seeing other men. Her roommates noticed that they regularly argued over the phone about his jealousy issues. Though she wouldn't tell him directly, Rachel felt annoyed by his jealousy and thought he was overly possessive. On February 11th, she mailed him a Valentine's Day card where she wrote, To my one and only John, the one who was with me through the most wondrous moments of my life. But on the same day, she wrote her true feelings privately in her diary. What a joke. I just wrote John's Valentine's card, full of sweet, pure words. Words that I shoveled out of some fountain inside of me a fountain that dried and cracked. Somehow, I don't think you would have appreciated sweet nothings along the lines of, you sick, childish bastard. Unaware of her true feelings that Valentine's Day, he professed his love to Rachel and asked her to marry him. To his disappointment, she turned him down. In April, Rachel spent the Easter break with her parents in Blackpool. The Saturday after Easter, Rachel's mother drove her back down to Oxford. After dropping her off, her mother headed back to Blackpool around 4 p.m., and John arrived at 7.30 p.m. to spend the rest of the weekend with her. That Sunday was a lazy day at home for the couple. Rachel's roommates hadn't returned from the holidays yet, so Rachel and John had the flat to themselves. Rachel had term exams the following week, so she studied in the front room while John watched football. John was an avid Nottingham fan, and they were playing West Ham in the FA Cup semifinals. The following day, John took the 6.55 train back to Nottingham from the Oxford train station. Later that week, when her roommates returned home, Rachel wasn't there. Her bedroom windows were open, and nothing seemed to be out of place. They thought it was odd, 
but Rachel was a busy girl, so they weren't really concerned. John tried to call Rachel on Wednesday, but got no answer, then tried again the following day and, as usual, left messages with her roommates. The next day, Thursday, a letter from John arrived in the mailbox. He had mailed it as soon as he returned to Nottingham. My dearest lovely Rachel, thank you for such a lovely weekend. Please excuse the handwriting as I'm now sadly wending my way away from your smiling face. Fancy seeing that friend of yours at the station. At least you didn't have to get a bus home. It was nice of him to give you a lift. But I hate him because he has longer hair than me. Ha <laughs> ha. It's nice to know that you will not be alone for the next few days. I worry for you in that house on your own. It wasn't until four days later on April 19th when Rachel didn't show up for an appointment with her tutor that they knew something was not right. Rachel would never miss that appointment. Her tutor reported her missing. Police originally didn't take the missing person's report with much urgency. They received reports of dozens of missing students every month in Oxford. Investigators began their search for Rachel at the flat she was sharing with four other students, Victoria Clare, Margaret Smith, Sarah Hume, and Joe Formby. During the questioning, her roommates showed police the letter that John had mailed to Rachel from Nottingham. The contents of the letter let them know that John was the last person to have contact with her, except for an unknown man at the Oxford train station. Nothing seemed out of place during the first inspections of the house. There were no obvious signs of foul play. Initial examinations of the floorboards showed no signs of tampering. But when police later found her diary, they could see that John's letter didn't quite add up. From Rachel's diary, they could clearly see that John was very possessive of Rachel. In his letter, he wrote of the long-haired stranger that gave her a ride back home. But that wasn't John's style to be so tolerant of another man taking her home. From her diary, they could tell that John would have been jealous of the stranger. That would never have sat well with John. A second letter from John arrived to Rachel's flat. In it, John wrote, I've tried calling you all week, but I guess you are working. A call would be appreciated. The following Monday on April 22nd, police spoke to John Tanner in the first of many interviews. He expressed his concern for Rachel's whereabouts. He told police that Rachel had woken up earlier than him the previous Monday to study, while he slept in until around noon. He then showered and got ready to take the train back to Nottingham. He said they made love in the afternoon, and the two of them took the bus to the Oxford train station around 4.15 p.m. John explained that while they were at Oxford station waiting for his 6.55 p.m. train, they ran into a friend of Rachel's in the cafe where the three of them sat and had coffee. He described the man as having long hair, ripped jeans, and a black leather jacket. The description was essentially the same as a description of himself. John explained that he didn't remember the man's name as he didn't think it was important at the time. He told the police that the mystery man offered to take Rachel back to her house so she wouldn't have to take the bus home. John said that he and Rachel had embraced and kissed on the platform before his train arrived. Then he boarded the train back to Nottingham. Police didn't buy his story and he quickly became their prime suspect. That same day, police went public with the news of Rachel's disappearance. Detective Bound said, Although we could not admit it publicly, it seemed from the outset that some harm had befallen her. There was no reason for her to run away. She was a happy girl with a good background, loving parents, and a bright future. 
Police assigned two police officers that befriended John Tanner. They made him believe they were just updating him on their search for Rachel, but they were actually watching him. They were watching his reactions to the news of the search, his body language, and generally just monitoring what he was up to. The search of the neighboring area was extensive. Police went door to door in her neighborhood, asking neighbors if they had seen her or noticed anything suspicious. Officers used sniffer dogs to comb through the nearby scrubland, and frogmen were sent to drag the nearby river Churwell. Investigators searched the house once again, but again they found no clues. Nine days after Rachel's disappearance, her parents, Joan and Malcolm, held a press conference, hoping that it might help find their daughter. As with many mysteries like this, many calls came into the police with clues, but nothing panned out. Police asked John to help them put together a sketch of the mystery man from the train station. When the sketch was released to the public, no one came forward with any information. Rachel had been missing for two weeks, and detectives assumed the worst. They believed she was dead and started searching sewers and cesspits around the Oxford area, but ultimately their efforts were futile. Detectives still believed that John Tanner had killed her, but they needed to get more information out of him. Surprisingly, Tanner agreed to take part in a press conference and a reconstruction of their last moments together at the Oxford train station. Tanner saw it as an opportunity to portray himself as cooperative and wanting to help with the investigation. Police wanted to invoke the help of the media and asked the local television station to present certain questions to him during the press conference to see how he would react. During the press conference, reporters mentioned that his description of the mystery man was much like the description of himself. He replied, I had nothing to do with her disappearance. I know what people are saying. As instructed by the police, they asked him directly if he believed she was still alive. His response was, I did not kill her. I don't know what happened to her. In my heart of hearts, I know she is still alive. However, in the video, he spoke with a slight smirk on his face. That did not sit well with the public or the police. When the reporters asked if he had a message for anyone that may be holding Rachel against her will, he said, I would appeal to them to come forward and tell us, just out of sheer consideration for her mother and father and myself. We'll be back to True Crime Sleep Stories right after this message. What if you could share your story with the world? What if you could inspire others with your passion, your message, or your vision? What if you had a team to help you craft the perfect story for your business or brand? Well, you can. And we at With AIM are here to make it happen. With AIM is more than just a podcast production company. We are your storytellers, your voice, and your partner in creating a podcast that will captivate your audience, showcase your brand's personality, and build a lasting relationship with your customers. So don't let your story go untold. Start your podcast today. Visit withaim.co slash podcast to learn more. That's withaim.co forward slash podcast. With AIM, be the voice of your brand. During the reconstruction, Tanner and a police officer that played the role of Rachel stood on the platform at the train station arm-in-arm. Then an actor dressed as his description of the mystery man met them at the cafe in the station and they sat at a table and had coffee. Local television channels repeatedly aired the reconstruction. 
When John Tanner took part in the reconstruction of their last moments together, he thought no one would remember a random couple at a train station two weeks prior. But he was wrong. Two witnesses distinctly remembered John Tanner on April 15th at the Oxford train station. But they remembered him alone, not with a girl and not with another man. An Oxford resident named Jane Wynne Jones told police that she had sat next to him at the station. She described, He was agitated and seemed to be shuffling a lot and going in and out of a bag which was on the floor next to him. He brought out a pad with a thin paper and lines on it. He was writing in black ink. Police now believe this was when Tanner penned the letter to Rachel that he later sent from Nottingham. Other parts of John's story started to fall apart as well. John claimed that he and Rachel boarded a city bus at 4.15 p.m. that day, but Oxford buses electronically kept track of how many people boarded and paid at each stop on their route. On the day and time of that stop, only one person boarded that bus, John Tanner. Police still believed the body of Rachel McLean was in the house somewhere. It wasn't until they contacted the Oxford Council to get detailed layouts of the home on Argyle Street that they realized the houses on the street were underpinned. This meant there were small cavities of airspace beneath the floorboards. On Thursday, May 2nd, 19 days after Rachel was last seen, detectives went back to the house once again for a more thorough examination. When they crawled into the cupboards beneath the stairwell and pulled up the floorboards, they found the body of Rachel McLean. Her body had been crammed in a small space only eight inches high. The cold outdoor temperatures at that time of year had slowed the decomposition of the body and the ventilation of the house underpinning allowed any odors to go undetected for 19 days. Within an hour of finding the body, John Tanner was arrested in a pub in Nottingham. Initially, Tanner refused to answer any questions posed by the police, but the following day he broke down and admitted that he'd killed his girlfriend. Tanner explained that on Sunday evening after watching the football game, he again asked her for her hand in marriage, but again she turned him down. As he begged her, she became aggravated with him and told him that she didn't want to be engaged. He wrote in his confession that when she told him she didn't want to be engaged, he was offended and must have snapped. I flew at her in a rage and proceeded to put my hands around her neck, Tanner told police. I think I must have lost control because I have only a vague recollection of the time that elapsed afterwards. I'm bewildered why I've done such a terrible thing to a person I love dearly. She told him that she wanted to give him a reason why she didn't want to get engaged. The two argued about it, and then she told him that she had been sleeping with other people. Tanner then called her a tart, and she raised her hand as if she was going to strike him, and he said he lost control. Tanner recalled lunging at her and moving his hands towards her neck. Medical examiners said there was evidence of a ligature being used on her neck, but Tanner claims to have blacked out and only remembers sitting on the bed with her body on the floor. Police believed that he used the paisley tie she gave him for Christmas to strangle her. Tanner picked up Rachel's dead body and laid her on the bed and then slept on the floor next to her bed. The following day, he spent the day pulling up the floorboards under the stairs and managed to get her through a tiny 8-inch gap to the area beneath the floorboards. He then took a bus to Oxford train station and caught the 6.55 p.m. train back to Nottingham. 
As he waited in the station for the train, he wrote a letter to Rachel in an attempt to make it appear that he believed her to still be alive and place suspicion on the mystery man. He mailed the letter when he got home to Nottingham. In the days following, he called her home twice and mailed another letter in feeble attempts to solidify his alibi. Despite his confession, seven months later, in December 1991, John Tanner pleaded not guilty. He admitted to killing her, but he claimed it was not murder. Tanner knew that he would be handed a life sentence if he admitted to murder and would serve about 15 years. If he was convicted of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility, he would only get about eight years in prison and could be out in four or five years. It was an easy choice. Tanner played the role of the poor boyfriend in court. He tried to convince the jury that he was a loving, caring boyfriend that only wanted to marry his one true love rather than a possessive control freak. He claimed that Rachel provoked him to lose his self-control. He also told the court that Rachel would tease him because he was unable to perform sexually because of pain in his groin. Ultimately, his pleas didn't help him, and after four hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a 10-2 majority guilty verdict. At his sentencing, Judge Kennedy told Tanner, I entirely accept that she was precious to you, but this was a savage attack and your conduct afterwards up until the time when her body was found did nothing to ameliorate the gravity of the offense. Despite it all, Rachel's mother said that she forgave Tanner. I think we feel the same way we've always felt, that this is a tragedy for him in his life as well. Yes, I think we can forgive him because otherwise it eats into your life and the lives of others around you. If you start on the path of forgiveness, you can start to build a new life, and all the people around you can build new lives. 22-year-old John Tanner was sentenced to life in prison, but that's not the end of the story. While in prison, he formed an odd relationship with a woman named Siobhan Howes, who had a striking resemblance to Rachel McLean. Siobhan visited Tanner at Gartree Prison while she was studying criminology at Lowborough University. Siobhan saw Tanner as a victim of a tragic chain of circumstances and a crime of passion. During his time in prison, Tanner referred to Siobhan as his girlfriend, and she looked into the possibility of Tanner finishing his prison sentence in New Zealand. She eventually moved to New Zealand and taught at Wanganai Collegiate School, the same school Tanner attended years earlier. After serving only a little more than 11 years of his life sentence, Tanner was released in 2003 and returned to New Zealand. It is unknown whether Tanner got together with Siobhan Howes upon his return to New Zealand, but he was back in the news again in 2018. Over a period of six months in 2017, Tanner abused his girlfriend repeatedly and threatened to kill her. At 49 years old, Tanner was sentenced to two years, nine months, for punching her with a closed fist and choking his girlfriend during an argument in New Zealand. During his sentencing, Judge Creighton said, Between 1 March 2017 and 27 September 2017, whilst there was an argument, she told you she was leaving you. You, in response, told her that she was not and that you would kill her. She did not take the threat seriously. Then you jumped on top of her, put both hands across her neck, restricting her breathing. As a consequence, she suffered soreness in her throat area. 
You held her down, straddling her. You were yelling at her about her ex-partner. You used your hands to deliver blows, slaps to her face and head a number of times. You then punched her twice around the head with a closed fist. At that point, she had suffered a graze and bruising to the left side of her forehead. She became worried and sat against the headboard on the bed with her knees up. You walked over, pulled her pants down and underwear off, saying you wanted to have sex. It was said in a blunt and aggressive manner. You then demanded that she remove her SIM card from her phone, and as she attempted to get away from her, you grabbed her by the shirt, pulling her forward and punching her several times in the head. The victim fell onto the floor and attempted to shield her face from the blows. You punched the victim around the head and face several more times. Mr. Tanner, it is, of course, and never has been acceptable for violence within a family context. You have one significant aggravated factor. It is your previous conviction for murder. Your uttering of your intent to have sex with her is a disturbing element. That you ripped her clothing off can only be seen in this context as an act of violent domination and control over your victim. On charge three, injuring with intent to injure, the sentence is one of two years, nine months. On charge one and charge two, there will be one year's imprisonment concurrent on each. Thanks for listening to True Crime Sleep Stories. If you aren't asleep yet, consider following the show. Maybe our next story will give you the peace of mind you desperately need. Or not.